Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Well, Kristen Wong-Tam has had an interesting political adventure in Toronto City Council. She's now the NDP candidate in Toronto Centre. Why'd she make that choice? What about some of the talk about is the party being representative enough? We'll talk to her about that on uh, the Toronto Today podcast. Steve Pakin as well, Anthony Fury, and masks won't be on U.S. planes anymore. And they kind of celebrated that. I know, America, blah, 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 but... When you really think about it, the eating, the drinking, the mask up and down, not mandating N95s, cloth masks, great uh, ventilation and filtration on a plane. Were they really making that much of a difference? I mean, I'm open-minded about it. Toronto Today begins now. A huge moment. Like, I'm serious. A huge moment for uh, team reality. Getting back to normal, did you see what happened in the United States of America yesterday? The mask mandate that was utilized for travel was struck down. A judge struck down the CDC mandate. Now, by the way, the people that didn't like that particular mandate uh, were very happy to publicize who the judge was, mentioned that she was an appointee of former President Trump. Come on, Greg Brady, Donald Trump. I got I got no I got no love here. I got nothing good to say about that person. Not a not a thing. But she did write that the CDC exceeded its statutory authority with the order. Oh, by the way, she is a woman. Is that not a progressive hire? She's 35. Is that do we need 72 year old men to, de- to define everything and set all the rules? And reg- I thought that was a problem. That's not anymore. Oh, when you don't like the ruling, then you don't then you go to the demographic of the person that did it. I got you. I'm seeing how the game gets played here. So she writes that while the government argued for a broader definition of the word sanitation, and that meant preventing disease. As she put it, um, the definition by the CDC was about like cleaning measures. And as she wrote, wearing a mask cleans nothing. And she's right about that. Here's some of the problem. Uh, It is an airplane. You do get a choice. Now, here's where I think the the ruling would land for me. If I was on a jury about whether or not this is even constitutional at this point with where the virus is at and who it's dangerous for, um, I can make the case. You go to the hospital, you don't have a choice to go. You go to a uh, long-term care home to visit a loved one, as I often do with my father-in-law. Well, you you have a choice to go, but you should go. You should go as often as you can. I haven't been since Christmas. Regulations kept me out uh, for the first two months. Um, I wasn't one of the, uh, you know, essential caregivers. And uh, and I've got to get back there. I've got to see him. And I, I have to be there more. I know that. But um, but those are choices that I don't I, I have to be in those places. Work environments are pretty similar in that capacity. I can even make the case that that there's probably more. I don't agree with it, but you could make the case for schools having a mask mandate more than you could an airplane, more than you could an airplane. Like, let's let's be really realistic about this. The airplane's air is phenomenal. It's it's recirculated. The ventilation's amazing. We're not seeing outbreaks on planes. The protection you get from a cloth mask post Omicron now into BA2 is virtually nothing. It, I mean, are we going to argue about this? Really? So unless you unless you're hardcoring it, unless you are hardcoring it and saying, here's the new mask mandate for airplanes, can 95s and N95s only nothing to eat, nothing to drink. You keep it on. That's that. It doesn't go up. It doesn't come down. It does. You cough into it. Go to the bathroom. You can do those things. That mask does not come off for the entirety of your three-hour flight, seven-hour flight, 12-hour flight. But we wouldn't do that to people because that would be considered cruel and almost inhumane. So let me run this down your uh, alley again. Great air. Phenomenally reproduced air. The protection from a cloth mask, virtually nothing. I can poke my, If I can poke my finger in the side, and I could, and that would be a tremendous violation of your physical uh, and emotional rights, I give you that. But if I can poke my finger into the side of your cloth mask or your kids, um, your risk factors don't change at all. That mask isn't doing nothing. It's not doing nothing. So you've got two years. You've had two years to realize this, and there is no hardcore statistical evidence that the mask mandate would make a massive bit of difference. Here's what I've noticed is how uh, you, 
COVID has exposed many things. It's exposed a lot of our flaws. It's exposed a lot of what we need to do and, and what we need to advocate for. That's building up healthcare capacity. That is fresh air in buildings. That is looking out for each other. But that's not what this is. But what it's also exposed is how some people just don't get what this is. And they're also awful at risk analysis. They're atrocious at it, as a matter of fact. Many, uh, many doctors have shown they're quite myopic about COVID. They're not weighing learning loss. They're not weighing how your kid is feeling emotionally. They're not weighing how you feel because you've lost income or you've lost a job or you've, you've, your marriage has broken up over this tension and the lockdown and everything else. They don't care about that. They don't. Then I could give you the names. They, the, all these doomsday doctors, they don't care about that. They never tweet. They're not tweeting about China. Okay, they're not tweeting about lockdowns and COVID zero, and they're not tweeting about their concern for you to pick up the pieces. We haven't even grieved properly, properly uh, post COVID. So when all this happens, you do have to wonder where we're going here. And I think there's more than enough occasion to wonder about whether this is a huge burst of uh, water through the dam here. In fact, here is uh, this is uh, audio, by the way. Of, uh, of Pete Muntine, CNN aviation correspondent, talking last night about how big this is. This rule, the federal transportation mask mandate, exceeds the CDC's authority. Remember, this was put in place by the Biden administration February 2021. It was extended multiple times, was to expire on March 18th, then was to expire on April 18th today. Just last week, the Biden administration announced it was going to be extended by two weeks. The new expiration date was May 3rd, 2022, and we now know thanks to this judge's ruling, that that is no longer the case. The federal transportation mass mandate, planes, trains, buses, boats, and in terminals, mass no longer required pending this federal review. Mm-hmm. All that, all that's fair. All, all that's an accurate statement. How did uh, crowds on airplanes react? Well, um, it, it became all, you remember that part, that movie with Gwyneth Paltrow where it just feels like they're dancing on every flight? I don't even remember the name of it, but I remember the ads. That's sort of how it was. Here's a United Airline captain telling his captive audience, if you will, that they don't have to wear masks anymore in mid-flight. April 18th, the Biden administration announced that the Transportation Security Administration will no longer enforce the federal mandate requiring masks in all U.S. airports and onboard aircraft. Not exactly a mixed response, was it? And I've seen the criticism out there. A Trump judge appointee. What there with no public health experience overrules the CDC. We're in the midst of a deadly pandemic. This isn't good. How we're showing we don't care about other people. I'm sorry. It's actually the right precedent. Okay, what are you more worried about right now? A respiratory virus that has been reduced to the flu. This is not the same pandemic we were stuck in the middle of. We were fearful of. We were looking out for each other in and we don't need to have the same level of alarm and panic as June of 2020 or August of 2020, even Christmas of 2020. We don't have to have that. You know when your danger ended and you know how to manage risks for your particular household. So it's either government overreach or it's a respiratory virus. You might decide that you can handle one a lot more than the other. And we'll hear all the same arguments from all the same restriction advocates. People need to care more about each other and they have to care more about COVID. Life's a pretty beautiful thing and life is finite. And you watch, you watch ticket sales, vacation bookings are going to go up. I want to take my family somewhere. We haven't been on an airplane in three years. Our kids are getting older. We're going to be empty nesters in a half decade. We'll go somewhere and we'll be thrilled to be on that plane without masks. We just will. We just will. What about public health? People are asking. This is outrageous. The airlines will feel massive impact. Boycott United. Boycott Delta. Well, we've got different versions, by the way, of being safe. I just laid out for you, and you're more than welcome to correct me with the mask up, down thing, drinking, eating, talking, whatever. You're going to have to make a strong case that we have to go all N95s. You can't book a flight without wearing an N95. You can't get on a plane without an N95 being on. And we don't serve drinks, and we don't serve food. If you're willing to go that far, fantastic. Fantastic. Then we've got a conversation about safety. But 
the, the airline's dropping this right away. Nobody's more worried about PR than a big corporation. Nobody is. And the fact that everything got dropped immediately tells you right there. It tells you. It answers the question. Did the airlines think these rules were evidence-based? No. Did any of the airlines think the masks were doing anything on an airplane? Nuh-uh. All it was doing was making them lose customers and making life miserable. Plain and simple. If you have another answer for this, I'm more than willing to listen. But I'm telling you, here come the stories. Bookings are going to go up. People will book flights now. They will book vacations. They will go places. And the masks are fantastic. Wear one if you want. No one will bother you. No one will judge you. The judgment we told you this six weeks ago, it's only one way. It's only vitriolic. And it's only from people holding on to dear life who haven't admitted they've gotten anything wrong in the last 26 months about the virus, how it's moved, and how our society has made a pivot here. This is not what it is 18 months ago. This is far from what it is 24 months ago. And you think the all major airlines dropping the mandate within hours of this ruling doesn't that say everything to you? Our next guest is awesome because you're you're more likely to get a uh, uh, as likely to get a a uh, a tweet thread that will actually help you and keep you safe as you are comments on uh, NBA officiating and what the Raptors need to do. He's multifaceted. Doctor Zane Chagla joins <laughs> us right now. I mean, our. I, I, can't, I can't buy into some vast uh, left or right wing conspiracy that the league's trying to keep the Raptors down. They didn't do a very good job of it three years ago. No, I mean, look, Joel Embiid is a talent, right? And as much as Toronto fans want to hate us, <laughs> he's an MVP candidate, and this is why he's talented at the rim and he can get to the line and hit his free throws. Like, I, you know, you have to give some, some props to that, even though it's annoying being on the other side of it, for sure. Now, I don't know where you can go to lay down a, uh, I don't encourage gambling, but a prop bet uh, signifying a Drake-Joel Embiid argument or confrontation or discussion <laughs> Wednesday. Heavy money on that. A car payment, uh, if you're able to, uh, at that point in time. Look, you and I have talked about um, Pax Limited a fair bit, and I think you've been, to me, you've been the leading advocate for it. It's available now. What what kind of consumer, what kind of COVID patient is going in and asking for it? There's 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 demographics that need it a lot more than others, Doctor Chaglin. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, number one, if you're immunocompromised, you know, and your response to a vaccine isn't adequate, please, you know, that's the, the options are there for you to to if you get COVID, get treated. Number two, if you're not vaccinated, and and you know, again, many of the clinics that are operating around this province, especially unvaccinated people who have medical conditions, want to get those people in with compassion and dignity, and not in any judgmental manner, so that everyone has the same outcome from COVID nineteen. And then, you know, there are certain other people, people who didn't get their third doses but still have medical conditions, people over the age of 70 mm-hmm. um, with multiple medical conditions where, you know, the vast majority will still do well, but just to give an extra layer of security there, you know, those are important people. And, and again, this is, if done correctly, is huge, huge benefit to all of us, to keeping people out of hospital, to saving the healthcare system millions of dollars you know, it, it's upon all of us to make sure that the right people get treated and their access is there and, and up front. You note that you've prescribed over 200 doses of it in person and, and gotten a lot of people in, which is great, A, that you're seeing people in person, B, that they're so proactive. I, I think we've just lost, I hope that we've lost or are losing a lot of the whole, oh, you know, oh, how did you get it? What mistake did you make? Where were you? I thought you were doing all the right. Like, I think we're, especially with these trends, like Omicron changed everything, everything about how we framed COVID. And I hope we're past a lot of that that judgment. Clearly, when people come in and see you, they're not ashamed to say, I got it and I need help here. I, you know, it's, it's crazy, but there's still that. Like, you know, I, I'm sitting down with folks and they're explaining to me all the precautions they took in terms of, you know, masking. I don't go out. I don't go to high risk establishments. I wear my N95 everywhere and I still got it. And I don't know. And, you know, I, I sit back and I tell them, like, hey, there's no reason to be guilty here, right? This is a virus that's affected up to 45% of people in Ontario and, and uh, in the last three months and, and, you know, a good chunk of the world. But B, you know, if I was to tell you a time where, you you know, getting COVID was going to be a benign outcome, it would be April of 2022, not March of 2020. I don't yeah. want you to get COVID March of 2020. 
but you're sitting here talking to me, having a conversation after three doses of vaccines and me prescribing you treatment to make your risk even lower. You know, let's not worry about how you got COVID. Let's, you know, thank the fact that we're here today and have so many more tools to treat you and make sure that you have the same outcome as everyone else. I can't tell if it's the the tension about restrictions. There's a lot of people arguing right now. I mean, some are framing it as a culture war. I'm not sure I go that far, but but you're right. We would never feel um, bashful about explaining how we got the flu or how we got a stomach bug or how, you know, how we got, you know, a rotavirus of some sort or a gastro. Like we would never think, well, I need to explain myself here and the precautions I took to not get that. But that's where we still are on, on a lot of respects with this. And, and you know, it, this could work its way against us. Look, the first point of treatment is that people recognize their symptoms and get tested immediately. And, and again, using that, that time to really get under that five-day window, if people are feeling like, look, I did everything right, this can't be COVID, this can't be COVID, and then in day seven realize it's COVID, they've lost that window, right? So again, you know, we have to destigmatize getting this. Again, 45% of Ontario probably got COVID over the last few months, and, and probably more than half the population has seen it at one point or another from the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not a, a rare case anymore. This is something where, again, we have to destigmatize. We have to use the tools. We have to use high yield interventions to make sure people are safe. But stop worrying about how people are getting it, and more worry about how we can mm-hmm. reduce their risk of getting seriously ill from it. Doctor Zane Chagla is our guest. I, I think I, I look at what I do, or what journalists do, or, or you know, columnists. I haven't got everything right during this pandemic. A lot. I really underrated ventilation and safe air and safe buildings. Probably, probably eighteen months ago. But we know a lot more now than ever. So. I, you know, I worry we're stuck on like the same messaging and I worry we're in a bit of a bubble here in Ontario. Like I was it's not his fault. I'm not blaming him for this. I was a bit of gas last week that we put, you know, we're calling up Dr. Uni and putting him in a no win position by saying, can we safely gather for Easter? Well, he's kind of damned if he says, of course you can. And he's damned if he says what he says, which is, oh, go outside instead. So I'll ask you, like you can reframe what we're doing in the media. How do we talk this better? How do we line up? Tell us what to do better and differently. I I think we can handle some constructive criticism. I hope we can. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, let's let's focus on things that work, the things that have very high yield that will significantly change our prognosis from this over the coming weeks and months. So, you know, therapeutics, vaccines, healthcare capacity, making sure that we can deal with surges, whether they be COVID or non-COVID illnesses that are coming back. Long-term investments into, you know, vulnerable settings like long-term care. Yes, improving ventilation in high-risk settings mm-hmm. so that we, we use every tool available. Because those things will continue to work. They'll continue to protect our population. And they're, you know, as long as you can get people to, to engage with them once, they're going to have effects that last past that event. But when we're arguing about, you know, ra- you know how many rapid tests you have to do, you know, should you wear a mask or should you not wear a mask, uh, and should we mandate it? You know, capacity limits in, in establishment X or Y. You know, all of those things are fraught with behavioral issues. They're fraught with people that, you know, again, two years ago, were very afraid of this virus. Two years later, who have gotten the virus and gotten all the doses of vaccines are not necessarily prioritizing in their values and beliefs, not mm-hmm. gathering with individuals uh, or not going to that big Raptors game tomorrow night. You know, I think we have to start thinking Again, what are the high yield things and how can we reinforce this so that the population benefits and the trust is there when when things change and this virus changes on us, that we have trust that our governments are taking care of us rather than just, you know, again, having more and more suspicion by the day. And it will change. I only got 45 seconds here, but same thing with the argument yesterday, right? They dropped the mask mandate in the United States. The airlines say we're not going to enforce it. It wasn't our choice anyway. And when you're on a plane, the air is fantastic. If the mask is up and down, you're eating, drinking, eating, drinking. Um, you know, it doesn't change your risk, risk factor terrible. I can make the case there's many more environments, essential workplaces, even schools, where if the mask is on the whole time, but it never was on an airplane. I don't know that it changes the risk factor, but we're going to yell and scream and argue about it. Yeah, exactly. It's trust, right? You know, Denmark is the, the lead here where they, you know, people yelled at them for reducing restrictions. But the, the thought here was, We build trust. We will enforce things when the time comes. We will drop things when the time comes. And I think that is a part of 
why they've been so engaged with their system and why they continue to do so well, you know, I think this is this lesson has to be dealt with us. Otherwise, the next time something comes around, we've lost the trust of a significant amount of population. And we're going to be worse for it. Yeah, you're the you're the boy who cried wolf at that point. Infectious disease specialist, Dr. Zane Chagla. Hey, go Raptors. Thanks very much for coming on the show with me. You know, I appreciate it. No worries. Take care. Obviously, there's been an escalation in Ukraine and a difference in strategy as well. Now, some of that is how it's being sold to the Russian people. Some of that is exactly where the fighting and the shelling and the bombing is taking place. But it all matters. I, I said earlier on the show that the news sort of broke this morning. Hungary, Hungary will not. Now, that that's kind of a, a buddy. Their leader is a buddy of Putin. If we were to rank NATO leaders that are Putin buddies. Hungary's at the top of the list, and they will not put an embargo on Russian oil and gas. So that factors in. Want you to hear Ian Bremner, a very uh, smart guy, uh, does the G zero thing, and he says this is how it's being reframed, not just to the Russian people, but other Russian politicians. How the war is shifting here, and what you're seeing is a shift away from we're fighting Ukraine and denazifying that regime, and instead towards. The reason it's taking so long is because we're fighting all of NATO, that the West as a whole is fighting against us and they're sending troops on the ground that they're not really admitting to and they're sending all this military equipment, which of course they are uh, trumpeting, um, and indeed that the attack on this cruiser, which was purely at the hands of the Ukrainian military, nonetheless, uh, the Russians are saying NATO's behind it. Look, I mean, there is something to this It is certainly true that NATO is providing a hell of a lot of weaponry now, and the level of weaponry has been increasing every week, both the amount, almost $3 billion in defense support just from the United States and a lot from almost every corner of NATO. Yeah, all that's true. You're reframing Russia to your people as the underdog. We're not just fighting Ukraine. We're not the bully on the, you know, in in the schoolyard. Everybody's bullying up on us. It's Russia against the world. Let's not forget. A certain guy did that same thing during World War II. Everyone else is against us, and Germany bought into it. Here's, by the way, Malcolm Nance, who you've seen all over the place, Bill Maher. This is an incredible story. Malcolm Nance has been a a military commentator on many a network. You see him on uh, Bill Maher from time to time. He's joined the fight. He's over in Ukraine. He was on MSNBC last night. And when the invasion happened, I had friends who were in Donetsk, who were in the Ukrainian army who are writing to us and telling us we're not going to survive tonight. We've been hit 500 times. Uh, you know, these are graduates at Defense Language Institute. These are my friends. And, you know, as the more I saw of the war going on, the more I thought I'm done talking. All right. It's time to take action here. So uh, about a month ago, I joined the International uh, Legion here in Ukraine, and I am here to help this country fight, you know, what essentially is a war uh, of of its of ex- extermination. This is an existential war, and Russia has bought it to these people, and they are mass murdering civilians. And there are people here like me who are here to do something about it. Where's the lie? What else is there to say? Truly inspirational. And we always talk about saying and doing and how they're very, very different things. I want to bring in Marcus Kolga from uh, disinfowatch.org. I watched that video of Malcolm Nance last night. There's a 61-year-old man. He's given everything anyone could ever expect to military causes, and he's suited up. He's fully engaged and over in Ukraine fighting with, with the Foreign Legion. It's rather remarkable. Well, thanks for having me on, Greg. Yeah, I mean, it is remarkable, and, and he's right. I mean, what's happening right now, this war that Vladimir Putin is engaged in in Ukraine, um, you know, it's, it has become a war of extermination. It has become a war of terror. Um, it is intended to intimidate and repress the Ukrainian people so that, uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin can, can t- obviously take control of Ukraine. Um, it is intended to demonstrate to his own people that only he uh, can save the Russian people from some sort of, uh, you know, u- mysterious Ukrainian Nazis who are, trying, who are threatening Russia itself. And of course, that narrative is now uh, has always been that there's a threat, an imminent threat from NATO, whether it's uh, a NATO's invasion, a, a nuclear attack from NATO. But clearly, that that narrative in Russia has shifted uh, back heavily towards some sort of a, a non-existent NATO threat. Um, and so he's he's right. I mean, the, the West needs to do all it can right now to support uh, support Ukraine in this uh, in this existential fight that's happening. Uh, everything the 
The war has clearly shifted to uh, to Donbass right now. The the front is a nearly 500 kilometers long. Vladimir Putin is going to throw everything in the kitchen sink right now at uh, the Ukrainians because he is desperate right now. He needs a win. Uh, and so anything that we can do to to stop that, we need we need to do that now, because if we don't stop Vladimir Putin now, if we don't give Ukraine the resources and tools to push Vladimir Putin uh, back beyond his borders, um, then I think that uh, other parts of the world will be uh, at, at even greater risk. Marcus Colgus joining us on Toronto today. Um, it, it's also told us about organizations. I want to come back to NATO in a second, but I was having a conversation on the weekend with a, a friend who I lean on pretty heavily, and, and he's like, think about what you know about the United Nations. What was it created to do? Well, probably to stop exactly to stop conflicts like this. It's done nothing. Do we look now at the UN? Is this an, an awakening, a reckoning, Marcus, that the UN is... It's just worthless when there's been clear genocide against people um, who, you know, who who are of, uh, you know, either a certain skin color or a certain religion. We haven't done anything either. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, if we look at the Human Rights Council within the the, the UN, um, it is a completely dysfunctional organization and group. Um, the Human Rights Council is run by the world's human worst human rights abusers, um, and Russia was among them until until recently. Um, more broadly, the UN has completely failed to protect the Ukrainian people. Um, there have been desperate pleas for um, for support to defend uh, humanitarian corridors for those tens of thousands of of Ukrainians who have, have been fle- fleeing Mariupol. Um, the the four plus million displaced Ukrainians. Um, the UN has completely failed uh, to to support and defend and protect uh, fleeing refugees. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has been completely ineffective at stopping uh, Vladimir Putin in this war. And I think once this war, um, w- w- well, when it simmers down and uh, and we have time to reflect, I think uh, we have to think about uh, the UN, its role and whether it's a functioning organization in any way, shape, or form at this point. Is every tactic different if Russia does not have nuclear weapons? I get it. There's the fear of World War III. People have talked about that with the no-fly zone. Russia may use a nuclear weapon. But this is great inspiration to me, Marcus, for rogue nations, and we've seen them before. We're worried about Ahmadinejad in in Iran. This is like a 12, 13-year-old story. We've always got eyes on North Korea. But when you attack a peaceful and sovereign country without provocation and people think, well, we can't stop them, they they might use nuclear weapons. We're setting a pretty bad precedent here, whether we think we, we should be over the top engaging them or not. But it's it's a terrible precedent that there's this, you know, the idea of, of, a, of, a, of a mutually assured destruction just allows a nation to do what Russia's done. Yeah, you're right. I mean, new, Vladimir Putin is proving that nuclear intimidation works at this point. Yeah. Um, that is what has has prevented us, NATO and other Western nations, from providing those, uh, cl- from closing off Ukraine's skies, but also again protecting those um, those uh, refugee corridors. Um, you know, I think that the time has come to to call his bluff. It is entirely unlikely that Vladimir Putin would uh, would would engage in, in nuclear warfare um, if we were to uh, you know protect humanitarian corridors. It's it would be suicidal for him to do so. And, and we know that Vladimir Putin wouldn't do so because um, his number one uh, objective is to stay alive uh, and to remain in power. A nuclear war would assure that he would, he would no longer remain alive. He would no longer be in power. So he's not going to do that. Would he use a tactical uh, nuclear weapon against some eastern NATO country, it's, it's also un- unlikely because that would trigger a, an Article 5 response. I don't think that anyone in NATO, uh, barring Germany perhaps, I don't think anyone in NATO would, would tolerate that sort of, uh, uh, that sort of uh, an attack. So, um, you know, I think we need to call his bluff. I, need, I think we need to do a heck of a lot more. What we need to do, quite frankly, if we want to stop this sort of behavior um, in the future, because well, let's face it, Vladimir Putin is going to remain in power until he dies unless something dramatic happens in, in Russia, which it could. But right now we need to assume that he's going to remain in power. What we need to do is give him a, a very hard punch, give him a bloody nose, uh, push him back beyond uh, his borders out of Ukraine. And and if we can um, ensure that uh, uh, Russia is never able, at least in the in the near future, to engage in this sort of uh, 
of a barbaric invasion again. Marcus Kolga's our guest. Last thing for you. We've lionized Zelensky. We, we've we've certainly done that in terms of his leadership. Ukraine's not perfect. Their leadership structure is not perfect. They're um, a lot about Ukraine and, and their infrastructure is not perfect. But we don't have we need someone, I think, to match him on the world stage. And it's a big ask to go. Who's a modern day Winston Churchill? Who's even a modern day Ronald Reagan? When I was a kid and you were a kid. Um, Argentina took over the Falkland Islands and that may seem like nothing but Margaret Thatcher wagged her finger and said no you don't and that was over within a week I know that's not Russia in 2022 but we don't have someone stepping forward on the world stage and showing strength am I right well there there isn't an obvious leader I think you know Joseph Biden has done a a pretty good job uh, during this war I think he's he has stepped up I think the United States is is retaking that role that we expected to take um, you know, as much as it pains me to say it, Boris Johnson has done a fantastic job. He was yeah. the first, the first uh, Western leader to actually fly into Kiev and walk the streets of Kiev with President Zelensky. That was pretty impressive. Um, we need to see more of that. You know, I, I think what we need to see is, is uh, President Biden also going to Kiev and walking the streets of Kiev with, with Zelensky. Um, you know, President, or Prime Minister Trudeau could be doing the same thing. So mm. it remains to be seen who uh, amongst them is going to be that that one uh, one leader, that that uh, Reagan-esque or or, or Churchill type leader. Um, right now, there isn't one. If, if there is one in the West, it's it's President Zelensky. Marcus, uh, enjoy our chats. This is important stuff. We're going to stay on this. And thank you for making time for our show and our radio station. We always appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Greg. Oh, let's welcome on. By the way, he's going to talk tonight to the gentleman we spoke to last week. Uh, Jean Charest did his first long form Toronto radio interview since uh, becoming a candidate for the Conservative Party of Canada leadership. Today is the deadline. So, you know, any stragglers, any listeners, feel free. I don't think our next guest is through. He's going to. Yeah, there's a conflict there. If you, if Steve Pakin is running for the leadership of that party and interviewing John Charest tonight, I declare conflict. Steve Pakin, host of the agenda, joins us right now. You don't want to break any news on our show, do you? Definitely not. And uh, if, if um, let's put it this way, uh, no interest in running for the job. If elected to the job, will not serve in the job, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I got you uh, loud and clear. By the way, you, you were rolling along. We were having a fun time. You It was like, you know, um, having drinks, but without drinks and way too early in the morning with you and Patrick Brown. And then and then he wandered off muttering something about becoming prime minister and, and broke up our little merry band. And so I thank you for coming back on and and we'll see where it goes for uh, for Mr. Brown. But you're going to talk to uh, Jean Charest tonight. Uh, he's coming in actually in a few hours. We're going to tape something, and I think it may actually air tomorrow night. Okay. But yes. Uh, we're going to have, I think, what would be his first sort of significant sit down interview, you know, on the agenda. We don't like to interview people for two or three or four minutes. We're going to do 20 minutes with Ms. Mm-hmm. Monsieur Charest and find out why, after a decade in the private sector, after really accomplishing a great deal uh, in the public sector, you know, he had most of the, the really good jobs in politics. He was a deputy prime minister. He was a former leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. He was a premier of Quebec. He was the youngest cabinet minister in uh, Canadian history. I think he was 28 when he got appointed, uh, not unsurprisingly, youth minister in Brian Mulroney's cabinet back in the 80s. So he's done a lot of things. And um, I guess job one for us is to figure out why after being in the private sector and making a good living and serving on some boards and doing all that kind of stuff, why would you want to put your hand back into the blender? That, we're going to find out. Yeah, that makes me feel old that we were sitting there in 1993. I remember watching it at the time in my uh, rented house uh, while a Western student, and it was Jean Charest vis-a-vis Kim Campbell for, in essence, becoming similar to Turner and Chrétien about a decade earlier, becoming de facto prime minister. But also, and I asked Charest this last week, I said, you saw the train coming. Like, you knew probably what the federal election results would be. And he joked and he said, well, I didn't see two seats. And he was one, <laughs> he was one of the two seats remaining by the time the uh, red wave and reform obviously was big with Preston Manning then took some seats that would have been conservative strongholds and um, I, I liked his uh, his frankness he didn't see two seats being left standing you remember the other one I don't who was it here we go okay this is for real nerds these are for the real deep <laughs> political nerds yeah you're talking about the 1993 election when yes the, basically the progressive conservative party blew up the Quebec nationalists formed their own party in the Bloc Québécois the Western reformers formed their own, their own party in uh, the Reform Party of Canada, Preston Manning leading that at the time. And the PCs were left with two seats. Kim Campbell was the leader. She wasn't one of them. Right. Jean Charest was one. 
Wayne from New Brunswick was the other. And the big joke in Ottawa was <laughs> Jean Charest would show up at a restaurant and the maitre d' would look at him and say, oh, Monsieur Charest, party of two? Take this way, please. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it, you know, yeah, we wondered, he was 35 years old then. Kim Campbell was 46 and John Sherry was 35 then. And you're right, like it was a, it was a stark contrast. So um, I want to play you really quick. David Moskrop was on uh, Washington Post. He's basically written and saying, we got we to gotta reject the populism of Pierre Polyev. Here's what he said on, the, on our show yesterday. Uh, Polyev is you know, articulating a very simple, direct, an ideologically unabashed vision for the party and for the country. I think it's nonsense, but a lot of people agree with it. And it's communicated in such a way uh, that really resonates to people, especially in this moment. And the competitors have had a hard time breaking through. And Jean Charest comes off like yesterday's man. Um, I do think, however, though, it's possible that someone like Patrick Brown is quietly doing the work of signing up members. Yeah, he is good at that. the riding. Yeah. And, and could be a dark horse, because keep in mind, the way the conservative race works is every riding gets 100 points, unless they have fewer than 100 members, then they get one point per member. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter if Pierre Polyev has 2,000 people out in Calgary, if he can't get the points in every riding. So that's David Moskov on yesterday's show. Um, Pierre is connecting with people. He's drawing huge crowds to his rallies every time he makes a video. That video he made of the of the $2 million house in Vancouver, I couldn't tell you how many people forwarded that to me and said, he's connecting with me. I want to be a first-time home buyer, and no one else is talking about it. Whatever he's doing, you don't have to love him. He's getting your attention. There's no question about that. And the question I have, Greg, is, and I've seen some of these videos as well on social media, and the question is, they are really impactful, right? Mm-hmm. They really make an impression. You can't watch that event that he had last week in Edmonton and a thousand people show up. And I mean, let's face it, if, if a thousand people are showing up on a night when the Edmonton Oilers are on television uh, because they want to hear a political speech, you know, this guy's got something going for him. So the question then becomes, is all of this activity on social media indicative of signing up members, getting members out to vote, uh, a real you know, barnstorming effort behind his campaign? Or is it just stuff on social media? And this is the something, this is the question that will be asked in the fullness of time. There's no doubt that he is skating circles around everybody else in terms of his presentation, his presence. I mean, Jean Charest's opening video, and I'm going to ask him about this in a few hours, his opening video was about the worst campaign kickoff I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Monsieur Charest was sitting behind a desk with a red mug prominently placed in the foreground. I didn't quite get that. He sounded kind of tired and bored and said, you know, I'm in this race to win it. And the only thing you could take away from that, and social media let him know, right? That's the great thing about social media. (laughs) There's no subtle. No. Everybody on social media let him know that video just stunk. And meanwhile, Polyev is putting stuff out there that is really resonating with people and connecting. But let's remember At the end of the day, Greg, it's about signing up members and getting them to vote, signing up members and getting them to vote. So if, you know, Monsieur Poiliev may be doing a wonderful job on social media, but if the people he's signing up don't come out to vote, then it doesn't matter. That's what it's all about. Sign up members, get them out to vote. And then we find out September 10th who wins. Steve Pakin joining us uh, from TVO's The Agenda. You can watch it tonight, 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock. It's, it strikes me, it's not the only tactic, and this race could shift, but it's a very different scenario be, 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 between becoming conservative party leader and then going out and winning the federal election. And the argument for, it has to be the argument, right, for Brown and or Sheree, who've agreed that they'll try not to be too nasty to each other, and they may they may try and, you know, create some kind of a block, spelled B without the K, together, but they have to convince other party members we're the only ones that can deliver that can turn red seats to blue in the gta we're the only ones that can go up and down the 401 and grab a london seat here which is harder to do than ever lately a kitchener seat a guelph seat go all the way windsor's really tough we got to go up and down the 401 and get liberal seats away and they need about 20 of them to be honest if everything else stayed the same of course they've got manitoba and alberta and a good and all of saskatchewan but they need gta 401 seats And I don't happen to believe that argument. I I think the reality is governments don't get elected, they get defeated. And if in three years' time, when the liberal NDP accord expires and we have our next federal election, if at that point the people of Canada say in big enough numbers, we've had enough of Mr. Trudeau, thank you very much, it doesn't matter who the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada will be, that person will become prime minister. Right? That that happens to be my view. I think there, there have been... 
several leaders, even in our lifetime, Greg, who we never thought would become premier or prime minister, but who got the job because people were simply sick of the existing government of the day. So, you know, on balance, you would say that a more moderate leader like Charest or Brown would have a better shot at becoming prime minister. But uh, mm. I'm sure Monsieur Poilievre's argument is, if I'm the leader of the party, I can be prime minister if people are sick of Trudeau. And I would say there's a good deal of credence behind that argument. Is the distinction, though, getting a majority government? And we don't know when the next time we're going to see a majority government federally is. It's hard. It's hard to get 170 seats, um, all told. Yeah, right? Yeah, much harder to do these days just because there's, I mean, when you and I grew up, there's three parties represented in Parliament, right? It was mostly liberals mm. and Tories and then a few new Democrats. And that, those days are gone. we got lots of parties represented in there now. And, and, and so, yes, it's harder to, to put the coalition together to get to the number of seats, 170, I think you're right, is, uh, is needed for a majority government. Uh, but not impossible. And I remember in 1984, since we talked about the party of two a moment ago, I remember in 1984, people said, oh, Brian Mulroney, he's too slick. Uh, you know, his wife's too beautiful. He just, <laughs> there was so much about Mr. Mulroney that made people turn off. Uh. Yeah, he won the biggest majority government in Canadian history. Why? Because people had enough of the liberals. So, yeah. you know, when the wheel turns, it turns. Yeah. Do I vote for the beautiful current wife or the beautiful ex-wife that partied with the Rolling Stones? I don't know what to do. It's 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 a diff- <laughs> difficult thing when you get to mark that X uh, somewhere. We'll be watching tonight, Steve. Thanks very much for visiting with us. Love it. Thanks. Steve Pakin uh, from TV Ontario. The agenda airs tonight between 8 and 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock and midnight. Okay, I know the news cycle moves quickly, but we were uh, knee-deep into the issues of Afghanistan. And I remember hearing Roy Green talk about it on the weekend shows here, um, on the Roy Green Show, 2 to 5 p.m. on right here on 640 Toronto and across uh, our chorus radio network. Um, and he started talking about interpreters in Afghanistan. I'm like, okay, what's the significance here? Well, these interpreters and cooks and, uh, you know, um, people who uh, w- would give directions, a lot of people... Uh, native to Afghanistan, helped Canadian military uh, so military personnel and diplomatic personnel as well. And we haven't done enough to get them out. And yesterday, the Veteran Trans- Veterans Transition Network, uh, which has raised a bunch of money, they've helped get a lot of Afghans out since um, just the shocking takeover by the Taliban in Afghanistan in August. This is only eight months ago just says we, we can't do it anymore. We can't. The immigration system has too much red tape. We need to refocus priority on helping our Canadian vets. Oliver Thorns, the VTN executive director, and he joins me now on Toronto Today. This isn't an easy decision. This can't be something that comes lightly. Um, but at the same time, all the work you've done over the last eight months has gone somewhere. But it's um, it's been difficult. There's been a lot of roadblocks along the way. Yeah, you know, it's been a very challenging uh, eight months that we've been involved in supporting this effort. You know, the majority of the individuals that we're that we're talking to and that the groups we're working with have been talking to, um, you know, they, they don't have passports, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the groups that we're focusing on are the interpreters, the locally employed civilians who worked with our Canadian Forces members. Uh, many of them don't have passports, um, and there is now... Um, you know, not a stable and formed government that is able to provide passports. And even in the instance where they might be able to receive a passport, we're talking about going and applying to the de facto government, which is the Taliban, to do that. And so that then creates all sorts of challenges with us supporting that type of behavior because... Uh, or, or, or um, you know, those attempts, because then we're dealing with sanctions issues with regards to money landing in the hands of the Taliban. So all sorts of these challenges that are really slowing that movement and that effort uh, for people to get into a third country like Pakistan, where they can be processed. Mm-hmm. You know, our real call to action here um, is around Canada reopening some type of consular support within Afghanistan. That would allow for processing to occur much more quickly and get people up and on their way. And it, we would then have an intervention upstream that would not require all of this additional documentation like passports, visas, and all of those pieces, which are incredibly difficult and often dangerous to get. You bring that up and I wonder how feasible um, that is. What are what are the odds of that trade taking place? I'm sure there's a lot of um, you know, onerous work involved with establishing a, a, a consular office in, in the heart of, of Taliban country now. 
there's uh, no doubt that that is a, a Herculean feat uh, to accomplish. So we know it's not an easy ask of the Canadian government. Um, and certainly, you know, I, I want to be fair and reasonable. And I, I've mentioned this before, you know, we for a number of months uh, and, and the partners that we've been working with have been in contact with those in Global Affairs Canada in IRCC. These are incredibly hardworking individuals that we're talking to, and they are burning the candle at both ends, going full tilt uh, in an effort to make these things happen. Um, and we know or we feel that they are just as hogtied by, you know, this unrealistic and difficult policy as we are. So we do want to acknowledge all of their efforts, um, but certainly it's a very difficult issue for both them and us to navigate. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that have waited out and, and thought, well, I'm waiting for a passport renewal or um, I went mm -hmm. to work in the States and I waited for a work visa for what felt like forever. It was four months, but I could shrug my shoulders and live my life in Canada while I waited this out. This isn't that. Uh, this isn't that for these interpreters um, no. because Taliban are very aware and can easily you know, track down who worked for the United States forces, who worked for the UK forces, who worked for Canada. And their their mentality is almost well, you were against us prior um, and they're not, you know, they're in, they're in physical danger if they're caught. So it's not like they can go about their lives waiting for that phone call that says, hey, your paperwork's been approved. They almost have to still be underground, don't they? Absolutely. What we've really seen, you know, and very fortunately, we haven't seen, um, you know, what would look like a large scale coordinated effort to to root these individuals out you know interpreters and locally employed civilians but what we certainly know is that because of the work they did with the canadian forces and with other isaf forces that they are much more vulnerable they're vulnerable to retaliation to score settling from somebody you know who has the blessing of the taliban um for instance and and we know that they can't appeal to um uh, you know, law or justice, because the organization that runs the country is, is the one that they specifically tried to out when they supported the Canadian forces. So again, when you look at somebody who now, in order to come to Canada, they may have perhaps an approved application to the Special Administration Measures Program, but now they have to go to Pakistan with them and eight of their family members. So they need to secure perhaps eight passports, eight visas, for the entire family to go to Pakistan, you know, what do you write down as the reason yeah. for your visit on that form that immediately opens them up to risk of harm and retaliation? When you look at where you were at emotionally and mentally in the summer, watching this start to develop, a colleague of mine, Roy Green, with a weekend show here on Encore, started talking about this really early on. I'd be in the car and I'd think, OK, it's summer. You know, we're talking about, you know, a, a lot about covid, about schools reopening, but we're not talking a lot about this. And then all of a sudden in August, it did became it became the biggest international story was Western, you know, what Western countries getting out of Afghanistan. Did you see a lot of the, the chaos and disorder coming or, or did it even surprise you how how quickly these cities fell, how quickly um, the former governments just turned, just held up their hands and said, it's all yours uh, and, and take over. And then it just became incredibly chaotic and unsafe. You saw obviously the same footage I did, people running after jumbo yeah. jets and hanging onto the wings and just a desperate attempt to get out. Did you think it was going there or did it even surprise you that it went there? Oh, it absolutely surprised us. Um, and, and you know, I mean, I have to preface this with the, the past eight years of the work that I've done with the Veterans Transition Network has been really singular of our focus. And that's the mental health programs that we run for Canadian Forces veterans. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is well outside the, the work that our organization typically does. Uh, we were asked by a group of volunteer veterans who were, um, you know, preparing to support evacuation efforts if we could come in as the charitable arm to help raise funds and support those activities. Um, and the reason we became involved is that we heard constantly from veterans in our network, the graduates of our programs, the people we work with, that they were so supportive of the Afghan interpreters and the folks that they worked with over there. You know, in many cases, these individuals saved the lives of Canadian soldiers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, our men and women in uniform feel a debt of gratitude, uh, you know, to, to these individuals that help them. And so they have been fiercely uh, loyal and supportive of, of of these Afghans, and so that really was our motivation for becoming involved. Um, and we hit the ground running, but but to your point, everything fell apart far 
far faster than, than we expected. This was initially going to be a 30-day fundraising effort for us, and it's transformed into eight months of, of an all-out yeah. uh, fundraising communication and, and evacuation campaign. Oh. Um, so we, we feels like we've learned a lifetime inside of eight months. Oliver Thorne's our guest veteran transition network. And, and for the good work you do, it, it, it is such is so important to to let people know that that's that's the focus now is is getting, you know, brave Canadian men and women who donated, you know, months, if not years uh, to being over in, in Afghanistan and in those uh, danger zones uh, to come back and, and be well again. And I'd say this, we made them promises, too, didn't we? This wasn't just about what we promised ourselves we'd do for them. We made it directly to them. I'm, I'm looking at a quote from uh, Christelle Chartron, who uh, was a spokesperson, is a spokesperson for Global Affairs Canada. Um, she writes, we will not stop before we evacuate remaining Canadian citizens, permanent residents and their families and the vulnerable Afghans who supported our work in Afghanistan. And from your words and from all accounts, we've fallen a little bit short there. Absolutely. I, I believe we have. And I think that, you know, the Canadian public and Canadian veterans have made it very, very clear um, just how supportive they are, you know, of, of these people, um, of these men and women, again, who put their lives at risk, uh, you know, to to support our men and women in uniform, to support their country, to support their, you know, their hopeful dream for their country. Um, and we absolutely owe them. And I think, uh, I think the veterans, Canadian veterans and the Canadian public have have spoken very clearly that they believe that, too. Oliver Thorne, uh, veteran trans, Veterans Transition uh, Network, thanks very much for the time. This has been, I know, educational for me, our listeners, too. And let's stay in touch. Um, it's an important issue. Um, and you're doing the continuing to doing the work to help Canadian veterans. And I'm all for getting uh, that amplification out. So thanks again for the time. Thank you very much, Greg. We really appreciate the continued uh, support of this message and, and, you know, helping this conversation to go on. So thank you so much. Happy to welcome our next guest on. She's represented Ward 13 uh, on Toronto City Council since the 2010 Toronto election. She will be the NDP candidate uh, to go to Queen's Park in Toronto Centre in the upcoming June 2nd election. She is Kristen Wong Tam. Thank you very much for coming back on the show. It's been a while, but I'm happy to have you. Thank you for making the time. Well, thank you very much, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Congratulations on your decision. I'm gonna I'm gonna make you LeBron James now. When did you make your decision, and how difficult a decision was it? Well, it, it certainly wasn't easy. Uh, it was not the trajectory that I thought for myself. Uh, Susan Morrison, our outgoing MPP, is an exceptional. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, hardworking individual. Uh, when she announced that she was leaving uh, on a Monday, uh, she gave me some notice. I wouldn't say it's a lot of notice, uh, but uh, I had a, a conversation with family and friends, um, and I really wanted to continue to serve. I also knew that it was time for me to, to really allow democratic renewal to take place at City Hall. Um, so I would say it, it was short order, uh, shortly after Sue's announced. Uh, within four days, I was uh, on the stage with uh, with Andrea Horvath uh, announcing my own intention to run for the nomination. What has what has been accomplished by her in uh, Toronto Centre that you'd like to continue? That you're really proud of, and you say, "I, I want to continue this battle or this fight," uh, whether you're in government or whether in opposition. Yeah, I mean, obviously, being in government enables you to do so much more. And Sue did not have the opportunity to sit in in the government side of the house. Um, but what she has done, and I really commend her for that, is just her, her tenacity to raise the voice in the issues for those who are marginalized. And in particular, she was a very strong tenant advocate. Um, oftentimes, uh, people will talk about uh, being a tenant advocate and one advocating for low-income uh, uh, residents, but Sue's really walked that walk. She herself was a, uh, was a tenant. Uh, she herself um, understood the issues very, very personally to be poverty that she grew up in. And I really was uh, so impressed with how she just did that type of work with with the grace and and fire that was needed. Uh, And I'm Mm -hmm. hoping to to be able to support that work and to build upon the foundation that she left behind. Kristen Wong-Tam's kind enough to join us on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Now, you saw this last week. There was a lot of discussion about uh, Kevin Yard uh, losing the ability to uh, represent his riding again. Um, The NDP's Black Caucus lost two really prominent members in recent weeks, and, and there were a lot 
of people, you know, Laura, I love Laura May Lindo. She's on the show a lot. She tweeted this this week has been anything but OK. Leadership is ensuring someone who needs help gets it. She had some agreement from a couple MPPs. It's tricky. I'm not going to say it's not. I'm not going to say there aren't there aren't issues. And the NDP needs to make sure they've got the best candidate in the best spot to win seats. But is is there anything to this that um, there is a lack of unity or is there a little bit of a crack in the unity of the NDP when we see things like this last week? Or is this just this is just open for debate and it's democratic and it's a wide open process? Well, I think one of the great things about this particular party, which I'm which I'm a member of, is the fact that we are willing to lean into those hard discussions. And, you know, I don't know Mr. Yardy personally, but uh, certainly have a lot of respect for the work that he's done. Um, and I don't know, unfortunately, uh, all the ins and outs of how the uh, how his nomination process um, unfolded and, and why he lost the nomination uh, battle. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, Andrea Horvat, and from what I can tell, the entire NDP team is very committed to one thing and focused on one thing, and that is to unseat Doug Ford in the upcoming election, 45 days down. Uh, we have to be able to build a, rebuild Ontario. It's been mm. a devastating global pandemic. We've all felt it. It's very punishing. Um, so I know that this is, is difficult, especially for those who were supporters of Mr. Yard, um, but uh, I do hope that uh, we can uh, rise above that and, and definitely find a space for him to continue to serve in the party and his community, which I believe uh, should happen. And I would be very interested in working towards that uh, if I'm elected myself as an as an MPP for Toronto Centre. Well, I had a conversation earlier in the show with Steve Pakin, and we talked from TVO, and you'd know him well. I, we talked about sort of that concept of being politically homeless right now. The pandemic has just you, you just flattened our confidence on a lot of levels, whether it's whether it's government, whether it's public health, sometimes with each other. We're, we're having arguments together we never imagined we'd have 24, 25 months ago, but it is a reality. Let me ask you whether you hear from voters in your riding or across the province that feel that way and, and how do you sort of, it's not even reaching across the table, it's just getting them to the table and saying, this mm-hmm. is something you can believe in because we've all had our we've all had things happen in the last two years that, that have just just rocked our world. That is such an important question. And uh, Greg, I would offer you two observations. One is, you know, there's a group of, um, of red Tories, I call them. Very, clear. I've, I've got a lot of friends who are on the conservative side of things, but, you know, mm-hmm. uh, progressive when it comes to social issues. They have been homeless with the Doug Ford uh, government uh, for some time. They don't know where to park their vote. And, you know, I think that uh, for, for many of them, they're actually leaning towards the New Democrats which I, I am grateful for. We've had those conversations because they, there is no space in that tent for them. Um, and, and I think that uh, having worked across the seat with Doug Ford at city council, I know that he's not necessarily, you know, the most collaborative person. He is a big personality, my way or the highway approach. Um, but the other thing that I, I really am most troubled by, and I really hope, to work towards improving that is the level of cynicism that we see in, in individuals, not just toward governments, but toward media, uh, toward institutions, to hospitals. Like, I really want to help rebuild that public trust and to be able to work towards advancing the public good. Um, I grew up uh, very poor uh, in Regent Park. I, I'm an immigrant. English is my second language. But Canada is the greatest country on the planet. I will always defend uh, my country. Um, mm. I also believe I have a responsibility to build towards making it a better place, whether it's Canada, Ontario, or Toronto. And that means that we have to be able to really be able to come together, find the commonalities that unite us, which are far greater than those that issues that divide us, and then be able to work together uh, constructively mm. uh, and respectfully. Uh, and that's something that I'm very interested in working towards uh, in this cu- upcoming election is to, of course, uh, be able to debate the issues mm. on its merits, but also to bring in as many people as possible who feel disillusioned by the process. Uh, and, and that mm. is something that will make our country stronger because we'll be more united as a mm. people. We will, be, we will be more globally competitive that way. I have 45 seconds here, but when I, when I hear from, this is what I hear from parents about COVID. So you tell me if you hear otherwise. What I hear is I, 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 they think about a year ago when Doug Ford and Christine Elliott closed down the outdoors. Seniors were isolated. Kids were isolated. Even though kids couldn't go to school, they weren't allowed to go. They, they didn't feel it was safe to go anywhere. So I hear voters say, I want that. I, I want to account for that. I don't want to worry about the next month or two. We've got vaccines and antivirals and we're moving forward. And there's a lot of people that want to take that step after 26 months. 
Do you think the NDP should focus more on the mistakes the Ford government made in the last three years? Or should they be worried about the next two, three months of policy? Because I'm hearing they want more of the former than the latter. If you're hearing different, you can say so. Um, you know, it's also another great question. I would say there's probably two things that we need to do is and that's to walk chew gum at the same time. Um, we have to be able to do these things concurrently. We need to be able to correct what was what went wrong in the past and bad decisions and bad mistakes that were made by, by Mr. Ford. But we also need to look forward, not just the next two or three months, but also the next 10 years of rebuilding this province. And I spoke to Andrea before I made my decision to run on her team. I had to, I had mm. to interview her myself one more time. And I really <laughs> needed to know for myself, you know, what are you going to do for Ontario? How are you going to help my community? How are you going to help me, you know, uplift Toronto? She had a 100-day plan immediately after taking office, and I'll tell you, it was good. So I, I know we don't have the time, uh, but I hope you can invite me back or perhaps the leader. I'm sure she'll be happy to explain it herself and, uh, and to, to, to have that conversation. A hundred percent. I can't tell you in my neighborhood, everyone knows. I know we use that phrase in the media and we shouldn't all the time. It's such an, it's the most, the most important. It is a really important election. It's a, as we see healthcare education matters a lot more how you vote provincially than it does federally. And it's not even close. So it matters a ton what we do June 2nd. I thank you very much for coming on. Congratulations on your political passion and your decision. And we'll definitely talk again before June 2nd. Okay. Thank you. All the best. Our next guest attempted to uh, take a sign into the uh, stadium at Rogers Center and was not allowed. What was the, was something offensive on it? Would someone's feelings have been hurt? Well, only the home plate umpire from the day before. There's a website called umpscorecards.com, and she printed out his, well, scorecard. Uh, again, none of us would want our, our 10th grade marks uh, and transcripts from university traveling around with us all the time. So maybe Jeff Nelson would have been upset, but they took her sign away. CJ Heyer uh, joins us now on Toronto Today. First of all, I admire that you're going to games when the weather's this bad, so you must be a real diehard fan. And I admire the uh, wherewithal to print out the sign. When did you first get the, Were you that mad after Saturday's loss that you, you thought, this is where I'm going? Oh, I was certainly that mad. I, <laughs> I, I don't think that I, I, I can guarantee you I didn't have that thought at the time. I was actually eggs on uh, the morning of, well, they only come out uh, an hour and a half or something. It only came out about an hour and a half after, before this next game. So yeah. Yeah, I didn't even cross my mind until I saw how bad it was. Um, and then, of course, there was a lot of outrage. Uh, interestingly, uh, the scorecards usually get, you know, 100 likes or whatever. This one is <laughs> 5,000 likes. So it was very popular. And yes. Oh, you're very viral. And here you are talking to us. No, and not me. I meant the ump scorecard itself. Oh, no, That's I know. I, I, one. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But but when you posted this and you wrote, I fought really hard, but they will not allow me in with my sign because it'd be considered to be, get this, quote, critical of the umpire. The overall favor, which umpscorecards.com provides, is, is that his calls alone as a home plate umpire created an extra 1.41 runs for the Oakland A's in that game, which ended up being critical to the outcome. I believe so, yes. <laughs> so what was... Heart of hearts. So did you have this folded up and they said you got to unfurl it and, and let us see it uh, with the ushers? Again, I don't I don't want to shame people. I think that's... But 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 I want to know how this transpired and how they said, ah, we, we can't... Let, it's kind of funny and ironic and witty and I don't see it being... A, there's a lot more offensive things that get yelled out by fans. You know that. That's quite true. But it is a policy that, that all signs need to be checked when you enter the stadium. So... I was just unfurling it, and security came by to uh, needed to have a look and to make sure it was it was acceptable. I had I I had no imagination that it wouldn't be acceptable. I, I was uh, yeah. no, I wouldn't I, in a million trillion years. It's clever, and uh, and so they gave it the once over and said what to you? And he said, "Oh, I'm sorry, I can't let you in with that." And I'm like, I was stunned. I was like, what? <laughs> I said, "Why not?" He said, "Well, because that's he said what you said, you know, that it could be you know seen as." Is saying the ump did a bad job, and I said, "But he did." Now, if I, had, <laughs> if, I if I had my life to do again, I would change that phrase because in, I I should have said I'm terrible off the cuff, which is why this interview terrifies. Oh, me. Oh no, but, it's not. No, it's not. I mean, you're you're you're. I, listen, I'm glad you're not giving a scorecard of uh, of our show on a regular basis. I don't want to see the end. Re- Too long a question at seven oh seven. Made the yeah. same point at eight ten. So I don't. I'm glad you're not scoring Toronto today. I, I am. If I could redo my 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 morning that 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 morning, I I would have said to him, it isn't saying the ump did a bad job. It is simply stating facts, just facts. If if you have inferred from the facts 
that he's done a bad job. Well, that's on you, right? I'm not. I'm. I'm. Like I saw somebody reply to to my tweet said something like, I, "I'm. Who's to say she, meaning me, wasn't mm-hmm. bringing this sign to say he'd gotten 68 percent of it right." You know, as opposed to 32% of it wrong. Listen, ask, like, ask my physics teacher in 10th grade, and people who listen to the show know I don't know very much about science, um, or they tell me that. Anyway, yeah, 68. And, and as you note, he called the ball accuracy 96%. He's got some skill to his game when calling balls. They just, some of them are strikes, but he calls them balls. Yes, he's very good at calling balls, uh, <laughs> yeah. no matter what kind of ball they are, yeah. So, CJ, nobody from the Blue Jays, I mean, maybe we can uh, amplify this. Nobody from the Blue Jays has reached out and said that sign's okay, or I think I think a pair of tickets. I, I'll go you one greater. The Toronto Raptors need you in a good seat. I'm not talking Drake seats, but they should be calling you Wednesday and saying, we need you to bring signs for the refereeing in last night's Game 2 against oh, the Raptors. Come on. Um, not just last night, the one before. I mean, it, yes, it, it's breaking my heart. I, I, <laughs> so Saturday was a very sad day in my home because the uh, the, the home plate ump at the Jays game had done this, and then the refing at the Raps game later on. I was like, this is, I can't do this. <laughs> well, I watched Toronto FC beat the Philadelphia Union. I'm a big Toronto FC fan and season ticket holder, and the the ref got all the calls right because they won. I know he did. I just know it in my heart of hearts. Uh, that, isn't that the way you can tell? Well, we're, I'll tell you what. There are people that work for the Raptors and people that work for MLSE that I know listen to this show, and if they reach out to me, we've got your number. I'm going to forward any, anything along. I know you're not asking for anything, but I think what you did was was cool. I think it was funny. It was ironic. It was interesting. I like interesting, and I, I you know, maybe we can give this a, another shot later in the summer and and get you to a game and, and after a particularly bad game. is You know Joe West retired. If I said Joe West, you know who that is, right? Oh, well, uh, thank you for not cursing. Yeah, you... if you could tell me that Angel Hernandez also retired, or oh gosh, gave him, I mean, him as a, a parting gift or something on his retirement, that would make my day. Oh, I love it. You don't like an ump show, and now you don't want robots umpiring. I don't want like like robots umpiring balls and strikes. I think I think we can still have some human. I don't like the replays. I don't like the replays and the challenges, CJ, because I like a good argument. I want people to... John Gibbons couldn't get thrown out as much once they bought replay back in. I like seeing some tension there. Well, this is how bad Saturday's game was. You know Charlie Montoya is not. That's the Jays manager, of course. Is a very peaceful man, very placid dude. He got so angry, he actually got chucked from Saturday's game. That, that tells you how bad the umpiring was on Saturday. So. It, it tells you that for sure. All right, we've got your number. If I get a reach out, we're coming back. We're coming back to you and uh, and and getting you in, into some prime seats at a Raptors or Leafs game, or because God knows that refereeing, that first obstruction holding call in the Leafs Bruins series, you know people are going to say the the refs have it in for the Leafs and the league doesn't want them to win. They want American teams in the final. You know that argument. Oh uh, yes, we've heard it. You've heard it many times. CJ, thanks very much for being a good sport and for being so creative. We appreciate you coming on. Pleasure. It, it was coming. awesome. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. A live version of our show goes tomorrow between 5.30 and 9 o'clock on Wednesday. Setting up maybe a little game three action, maybe a little buzz in the city despite the weather uh, with the Sixers and the uh, Raptors in game three of that series. And uh, much, much more. So check us out. You can hear us on the Radio Player Canada app or at 640toronto.com. Thanks again.